to episode 59 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. One of my favorite stories about Sylvia Sidney comes from screenwriter Norman Krasna. In an interview included in Backstory One, Interviews with Screenwriters of Hollywood's Golden Era, edited by Patrick McGilligan, Krasna talks about his humble origins. He worked in the shoe department at Macy's New York City. At night, he went to law school, and somehow in between, he wrote scripts intended for the stage and screen. In his little flat, above the typewriter, pinned to the wall, he had a picture of Sylvia Sidney. Her benevolent smile stood watch over him as he worked hard writing. He had a huge crush on Sylvia. She was the nice Jewish girl from the Bronx who made good. They later met at a party when he moved to Hollywood and became friends. According to Patrick McGilligan, in his biography of Fritz Lang, the two even dated for a while. The way Norman puts it, Sylvia was like one of his 90-year-old aunts. He was a year older than her in years, but she was far ahead of him in terms of life experience. She taught him how to do things like improve his table manners at the fancy parties. Krasna tells the story like a total gent. He doesn't kiss and and tell. Instead, he shows how generous she was with him, and he displays the good manners to be self-effacing about how green he was and how much he needed to learn. When they met at a Hollywood party, Sylvia was living with B.P. Schulberg, who was head of production for Paramount Studios. He was a whiz of publicity and minted his $10,000 a week salary as a star maker for the studio. He's the one who catapulted the it girl, Clara Bow, to stardom, and he brought Dietrich to the American film industry. Schulberg was only surpassed in authority by Adolf Zukor and Jesse Lasky, the founders of Paramount. But he left his wife and children for Sylvia Sidney. When you are a girl... Pursued by men, you grow up in a hurry. Sylvia Sidney remembers her start in Paramount in less romantic terms than Norman Krasna's recollection. In an interview from 1996, Sylvia recalled that when she started her contract in Paramount, when she replaced Clara Bow as the star of City Streets in 1931, the studio executive said, With that face, she'll never be a star, Sidney said. When Jesse Lasky first saw me in the commissary, he turned to B.P. Schulberg and said, Who's that ugly kid? Hard to believe. Each time I watch You and Me, I love it more. You and Me gives me everything I need in the first 10 minutes. It offers a thoughtful critique of commerce, yet it doesn't pander to an audience or tell us that it's better to shun material goods and be poor, like we get, say, with Frank Capra's corn poem bit about he lots and meet John Doe. In that picture, Walter Brennan gives a very long-winded speech about how it's better to be homeless without possessions rather than be burdened and corrupted by worldly goods. It's terribly crass and disingenuous to tell impoverished people that they're better off poor. Why, the very idea is antithetical to women's pictures and the glamour that defined the era of the Depression. 
I'll take Lang's pragmatism any day. Lang told Peter Bogdanovich in an interview, I wanted to make a picture that teaches you something, that life has a very peculiar way of making you pay for whatever you get. On one hand, Lang uses the idea of pay in the sense of Oscar Wilde when he observed, the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting what you want. But in another sense that's less pessimistic, you could interpret the picture as laying emphasis on consequences, responsibility, but leavened with fair shakes. When you pay your debt to society, you should get a chance to start fresh. The message in You and Me tells an audience that people mess up. They make mistakes, but they deserve an honest break. Everyone should have the chance to learn from their mistakes. The picture has heart. I'm rooting for everyone. And even with two minutes of Cecil Cunningham, I feel as though I've had a booster shot of vitamin sass. The picture is a modern parable from the opening song that offers us a montage that reminds viewers everything has a cost. You can't get something for nothing, says a stern male voice. Food, wine, cars, beauty treatments, clothing, everything good comes with a price tag. Next, the picture cuts to the opening scene set in Morris Department Store. A woman pauses over a display of shiny satin blouses. Then she snatches one, tucks it in her, in her coat, and makes a beeline for the exit. The blouse looks like a shade of oyster, pearly and off-white, the most luxuriant shade of satin. It's the color that calls to mind Jean Harlow's satin bias-cut gown from Adrian for Dinner at Eight. It's the shade of Carol Lombard's lingerie once she becomes a star in 20th century. Oyster satin makes you think of the glamour shoot by George Harrell of martinis before dinner and a dressing table laid out with stiff brushes and perfume atomizers. Satin begs to be touched, just like fur. So soft and smooth, you want it next to your skin. Sylvia Sidney plays Helen, who works behind the counter in the lingerie department. She sees the woman nick the blouse and stops her cold. Helen is a sales clerk, but surveillance is part of her job responsibility. If stock items disappear, she might be held accountable, as, say, Joan Crawford was when she was prosecuted for stolen merchandise from her employer in the film Paid from 1930. If a shop owner reported her to the police, who would side with a shop girl? As the two women talk about the blouse, a floor walker wanders over and wants to know what's going on. Sylvia protects the woman. She makes up a story about a spot on the blouse for which the customer has returned to complain. The manager type directs them onto the appropriate counter. Helen asks the woman why she took the blouse. She couldn't help herself. She always wanted a satin blouse. Helen echoes the baritone of the opening montage and tells her to wait until she can afford to pay for it before she gets another satin blouse. The woman compliments the sales girl. Gee, you're a nice guy. Who could blame the woman, though? There's something about bargain price fabric that is so punishing. It might be coarse or it has no drape or it has no movement that it depresses you the minute it touches your skin. It's like a prison that you wear. 
For a modest wage, department store employees such as Sylvia take responsibility for the goods, which makes them an ad hoc police force. Sure, take back a satin blouse and you can sleep at night, but what if they were baby shoes or a warm coat in a frosty winter? In this scene, the two women are like the cop and the gangster. The politics behind the larger systems of power are easy to put into relief set on the shop floor. It's the space that highlights the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. The other bit that makes me sigh as soft as candy floss is when Helen and Joe pass each other on the escalator. Helen takes an escalator back up to the lingerie department after she finishes with the woman who nabbed the blouse. Joe, played by George Raft, escorts a flirty customer, played by the saucy Joyce Compton, down the escalator to find the shoe department. When Joe catches sight of Helen, he moves his hand to the edge of the rail. Helen does the same. When they pass each other, their hands slide against and touch. Joe extends his fingers to catch every bit of Helen's hand. Raph's hands are so expressive, they hover in midair, savoring the moment when he and Helen are connected. In the hustle and bustle of commerce, when people are propelled forward, kept moving to speed up their spending, time stands still for just a few seconds, which makes the rest of the world retreat in shadow. From the close-up of their hands, we know Joe and Helen are in love before they do. The shot of their hands brushing is my Sistine Chapel ceiling. When Helen looks at the Hour of Ecstasy perfume display in the next scene, she's lost in the window-shopping fantasy of imagining herself transformed with a beautiful scent. Joe doesn't get it. He thinks it's just about smelling. Helen tells him that he doesn't know how much it can build a girl up, how it does something to your soul. What Joe Dennis doesn't know about women could fill volumes. Helen ends the subject with the observation, it must be very simple to be a man. In a way, this could be the tagline for women's pictures. Men may run the world, the business owners, the politicians, even the mob, but they don't often know how the world really works. The grim reality of the Depression had legions of men and women who were turned into criminals from a bleak culture of austerity. In desperate times, they turned to rackets to scratch out a living. But when the men leave jail and return to the outside, they crab about, say, how cozy their jail cells were and how chicken isn't as special now that they can have it every day. They don't value their freedom. Sylvia Sidney risks her freedom for love. She's courageous. When she catches the shoplifter, she wasn't interested in trying to punish her or label the woman. She's not interested in playing cops and robbers. But George Raff's character exhibits the trait of the larger power in society. He's suspicious. He mistakes her parole dockets for love letters. Instead of forgiveness and the right to have a fresh start, as he experienced when he was hired on by the shop owner, he makes a big stink. An ugly double standard frames his worldview. Men can have a past where they mess up, make mistakes. It's a way of thinking that ropes in other things like a sexual history. If women have it, though, they're tainted. They're no good. 
George Raff's character Joe harbors the double standards that still retain a currency today. Um, It's a certain kind of man who holds an old-fashioned idea of things like honor. Early in the picture, he tells Sylvia's Helen that he doubts he'd ever marry because the only women who would have him were our jailbirds, and he couldn't face a life with a woman like of that sort. I think one of the reasons that I like George Raff so much applies to other actors like Pat O'Brien. I'm a sucker for a mug who learns that everything he was taught about women is all wrong. It's kind of amazing and totally radical when you think about it. For example, in Virtue from 1932, when Pat O'Brien learns that Carol Lombard isn't a stenographer like he thought, but has made a living as a sex worker and was run out of town for being in the world's oldest profession, he takes a powder. But instead of going off the rails in that caveman-style drunken bender and tossing her in the gutter, he realizes what he's been told fails to match with the woman he's fallen for. And then he knows why he's a mug. The same thing happens with George Raft. At first, when he learns that Sylvia Sidney served a three-year custodial sentence, his eyes smolder with enough heat to power the lights in Morris' department store. I was happy enough, wasn't I? Joe Dennis is a baby who can't listen to the truth that his wife is only human. So what does Helen do? She schools him and his syndicate. In the department store toy department, when Helen foils their plan, Joe calls her a squealer and a dirty little stool pigeon, words thrown as violently as fists. Even though the gang are ordered to listen to her lecture, they ignore her and play with the toys like petulant children. They scoff when she tells them that they can't make any money stealing, that it doesn't add up in dollars and cents. Like I said earlier, men may run the world, but they often don't understand how it works. Enter Sylvia Sidney to teach them a lesson. Once she starts writing on the blackboard, they are riveted. Blackboards are magic. Somehow, we are hardwired to respond to the sound, the smell, the sight, the chalk on a slate. If you want attention from any group, whether it's children or adults, ask them questions and write their responses on a blackboard. Suddenly, everyone's paying attention. Writing down responses makes people feel seen and heard and validated. Everyone wants to contribute and and see themselves there represented on the board. Spellbound, the gangsters start connecting the dots. When Helen breaks it down and shows in black and white that the fortune they anticipated was chump change, they have seen the light. They had initially anticipated a $30,000 score. Helen calls them out. No, the allegorically named Shifty will only pay them 15% of that. From that $4,500 payout, she subtracts getaway cars, trucks to the hallway the goods, bribes for watchmen and and stock clerks, getaway tickets, and the boss's cut. By the end of it, she totals up a measly $113.33 payday for each man in the mob. Sylvia Sidney's probity in sums, in her smart little neckerchief, and her somber frock tell the mugs that they are all washed up. She tells them the big shots aren't little crooks like you. They're politicians. Now they know how the world really works. 
Before Fritz Lang lost the run of himself over Joan Bennett, as he was clearly was in the 1940s pictures that he made with her, he was obsessed with Sylvia Sidney. She starred in his first three American pictures, Fury in 1936, You Only Live Once from 1937, and then You and Me from 1938. Sylvia Sidney was the only person on Lang's side from the beginning. She told an interviewer that she turned down many other pictures for much bigger paydays to work with him on Fury in 1936. And it was because of her that he was hired on to direct her pictures You Only Live Once and You and Me. She felt like she learned a lot from him. In his biography of Fritz Lang, Patrick McGilligan reports that there were so many delays on the production that when they finally started, the cast and crew had to work from nine in the morning until midnight every day to try and make up for the losses. During the scene where Sylvia Sidney teaches the mob a lesson, she was so exhausted by Lang's attention to detail and the way he was dissatisfied with her handwriting on the board that she was near collapse. McGilligan states that Lang traced the script on the board as he wanted it faintly for her to follow. It was the end of a very long day, but Sylvia didn't complain. In an interview later, she said she was aware that the director had tried to place a wedge between herself and George Raft on set, much as he did with Henry Fonda on the set of their second picture. Sylvia said Fritz always needed a patsy on set, someone to pick on. But Sylvia called Raft a tough pussycat, both in real life and his character in the picture. Raft would sooner deck Lang than be pushed around. Sylvia Sidney said in an interview that of all the men she worked with, George Raft was the biggest gentleman. In an interview conducted in 1994, Sylvia recalled how she made friends with Fritz Lang from their first picture together. She said they became very dear, close friends. Sylvia said of him, he was bright, he was witty, he was giving. I still have a picture of him stuck up in my kitchen with a monocle. In an interview with Architectural Digest from 1996, only three years before she died, she still spoke of him in glowing terms. Lang was my favorite. Everything I know about filmmaking, I learned from him. And such a dear, gentle schlub of a man. When I married to Luther Adler and had just given birth to my son, Fritz flew to New York to make sure I was all right. Looking back on her film credits from the Depression, Sylvia recalled, I'd be the girl of the gangster, then the sister who was bringing up the gangster, then later the mother of the gangster, and they always had me ironing somebody's shirt. She does indeed iron George Raff's shirt in this picture when the parole officer arrives unannounced at her door to check on her. She has to hide the evidence that she's married and living with an ex-con. Sylvia's Helen is gentle, decent, and risks her freedom for the sake of the man she loves. She's the only one on the payroll with any courage. James Baldwin once wrote that Sylvia Sidney was the only American film actress who reminded me of reality. She bore her share of troubles on screen with a face like a valentine, heart-shaped and bow lips, and great big eyes that had seen more than her fair share of troubles. She has this unique quality that blends world-weary with hopefulness. Down but not out, Sylvia Sidney's characters hold on to hope. 
And if you can find anyone else who looks better in a white rubber shower cap, I'll eat that whale of a gefilte fish. Norman Krasna wrote the story for you and me, but the script was written by Virginia Van Up. In her book, Script Girls, Women Screenwriters in Hollywood, Lizzie Frankie reports that Virginia Van Up was born to work in the industry because her mother, Helen, wrote titles for the Ince Company. Virginia began acting when she was a child, but switched to working on the production end as a script doctor and assistant for the screenwriter Horace Jackson. That meant in reality, she edited or completed his scripts while he was on a bender. Virginia was well-liked by men in Hollywood because she was witty, stylish, and beautiful. She often dined with Fritz Lang during the production of You and Me, and they worked on revisions almost daily for weeks at a time. In Paramount, she made a name for herself writing for women like Carol Lombard and Madeline Carroll. Harry Cohn, head of Columbia Pictures, liked her work and lured her to his studio to write star vehicles for Rita Hayworth. Cohn was so pleased with the hit picture she wrote, Cover Girl and Gilda, that he made her an executive producer in the studio. He promoted her over 10 male hopefuls, who in turn begrudged her promotion. Now hold on to your hat for this. You'll never guess what happened next. Lizzie Frankie explains that when Cohn asked whether the other candidates ever came around to wishing her well, and she said no, he sacked the lot of them. Harry Cohn valued women in the audience and women's pictures so much that he installed Virginia Van Up in the front office. Can you imagine that today? Virginia Van Up's script is full of cracking lines. George Raft boasting about all the rackets he's tried, sign me up. His joke when they're walking up the stairs, the Statue of Liberty. It's so sweet. When he says, fish are crazy about me, they follow me around like dogs. George Stone as Patsy when he's caught by the wonderful Cecil Cunningham for using a tin opener like a safe cracker. Ain't it funny how them habits hang on? When Harry Carey, as Mr. Morris, addresses the ex-cons, he quips, My wife wanted me to collect stamps. I don't know why my hobby had to be idiots. I always brighten when Roscoe Carnes is on screen, and him threatening a small child is icing on the cake. Warren Hymer, as Lumpy, attempts to chastise Joe, saying, No guy likes to admit his girl is that bright. Really, this cast and script are so good, it's criminal. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time for episode 60 when I talk about my favorite Joan Crawford picture, the pre-code Sadie McKee from 1934. Thanks very much. Bye.